0: Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for these moments that we have to come together as a community to remember your goodness in our life. Thank you for the music that lifts our soul. Thank you for the word which challenges us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to abide and be present in each of our hearts this afternoon. Lord, we ask that you'll speak words of comfort, words of reproof, you'll give us hope for the future. In Jesus' name, amen. My incompetence at home repair is only matched by my absolute bafflement when it comes to car repair. Um, I'm not sure how many of you here own a car. How many of you own a car? Hands, okay. How many of you have fixed your car? Yeah, okay. We have nods. There's a bunch of people right there in the back who have all fixed cars well, I've never even changed oil in my car, and it's not a plan of mine to ever change oil in my car. It's, it's um, something which is way beyond me, and I have no interest in doing. I've never even changed a tire on my car, and it was only this summer I learned to use the metal thing that you have in the back of your car when you need to put your car up. I do know it's called a jack, But it was the first time I ever used one, and I used it because of a situation which I'm going to tell you about. Most of us, if you are local, um, if you're visiting, this may not mean much to you, but if you're a local and you are leaving this beautiful valley, you may take the same um, direction that most of us do. You go to Wallula, and then from Wallula you go on to Spalding, and then from Spalding you go on to 12. So I'd made those three turns, and I hit 12, and all of a sudden I heard a sound. Now, this sound was terrible, um, but I decided to make some deductions. I have a five-hour drive ahead of me. I just heard a terrible sound underneath my car. I have no idea what it is. What should I do? So I made the logical decision, based on my incompetence, to ignore it. (laughs) I mean, I have five hours ahead of me. I have no time to stop. And so I just continued to drive and the sound grew louder and louder until it was obvious that my poor car was not going through just a minor hiccup but was actually suffering a cardiac arrest. (laughs) I figured the shocks on my car were done, there was just an awful creaking and I put my foot down and uh, decided to just drive. Faster. It's the sporting equivalent of um, when you are on a field and something terrible goes wrong, and the kid is on the floor screaming, and the coach comes and just gives and just says, Put some ice on it, it will be better. This is what I did with my drive. I just went faster and faster and faster. Somewhere around Hermiston, the noise abated, and I knew that my decision not to stop and look under the car, but just to go faster, had been the right one. And so five hours later, I arrive and I turn into the driveway where we were staying, and then the car started to creak and to howl again. And so I grabbed Pastor Troy, and I said, hey, Pastor Troy, um, I think there's something wrong with my car. And he goes, what? And I said, I don't know, but it's been making noise. He goes, for how long? I said, for five hours. (laughs) <laughs> and so he goes and he gets his jack, we get ours, we, we put the car up, and we quickly realized that what the problem was was around this thing, which is called an undercar shield. Um, at least this is what it's supposed to look like. Um, this is what mine looked like after five hours. Um, and in fact, it's made its way all the way here, <laughs> because I kept this. Uh, this... This was dragging on the floor all the way from Walla Walla. And five hours later, instead of it being a flat piece of metal protecting the underside of my car from rocks, from debris, it had become this twisted version of itself. And as I think about this piece of metal this morning, I wonder how many of us uh, face similar problems in our life that would demand considerable emotional labor or would consider, would uh, demand our stopping in our life, would demand huge bouts of moral fortitude to fix. And we decide, instead of attending to the problem, nah, I'll just go faster. I'll just pretend it doesn't exist. I'll pretend the noise and the screaming is not happening. And so we ignore it because to stop, means that we have to change habits. To stop is going to be inconvenient, so we would rather ignore the howling and the screeching that is coming from the interior places of our life than to stop and to take notice and to do something about it. Parents, we've all been guilty of ignoring compounding issues in our children's lives. We've all been guilty of ignoring the strange things that they start doing that they've never done before, crossing our fingers that there is no correlation uh, between the compounding behavioral challenges of our children and the increased workload that keeps us from home because of our new position. We've all heard the screeching of our bodies as it forces us and tells us to slow down to make a difference, but we decide to ignore the lifestyle choices that exacerbate the problems. All of us have walked into toxic relationships or into toxic jobs. And then when our bodies and our minds begin to break down, rather than stopping to see what is going on underneath our hearts, we rather double down and we just go faster. So we go into the relationship with really optimistic views of how beautiful and brilliant it's going to be. And yet, when it starts to crash around us, rather than stopping because of shame, because of feeling like we're too far in, we just stay. We've all had candy crash on our phone. And we have realized that having Candy Crush has increased the screen time on our phone. so every week when our iPhone gives us the time and we find that we're 50, 75% higher than the week before, rather than just taking Candy Crush off, we just leave it and next week have the screen time go another 25% up. Because ignoring the truth is always easier in the short term, but it always costs us more in the long term. And if you're joining us today for the first time, we are traveling through the book of Daniel, this ancient book, and we're looking at how there may be lessons for us on how to flourish living in a time and in a place where like Daniel, we are having to be sort of exiles in a culture which is not formed for the ways of Jesus. And so Daniel, this sixth-century book, uh, starts off in Daniel chapter 1, where we're introduced to Daniel and his friends who go to the royal court of Babylon, and they are tested at the king's table. They are given new names, and they are forced to make a decision. And we learn in Daniel 1 that to flourish in Babylon, our kingdom identity must be stronger than our empire name. And then in Daniel chapter 2, we go to this weird story where King Nebuchadnezzar sees this huge uh, composite metal image in a dream and Daniel comes and he interprets this prophetic dream to him. And we learn from Daniel chapter 2 that divine revelation of God's future obligates us to a sacred responsibility of God's people. Yes, there is prophecy, but being told what is going to happen is not supposed to make us uh, feel proud, but it's supposed to put on us a duty of care for the people that God loves. And then Daniel chapter 3, we read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they are forced uh, in in this uh, arena of weaponized worship to bow before the image that Nebuchadnezzar has, or to be thrown in a fiery furnace. And we see the existential crisis that comes when they have to make a decision. And so we learn in Daniel chapter 3 that focus on the ultimate is clarifying in making decisions in the penultimate. And then two weeks ago, Daniel chapter 4, maybe the weirdest story of them all, Nebuchadnezzar essentially loses his mind he goes out into the field for seven years. He grows claws like an eagle. His, his uh, body grows feathers. He eats the grass of the field. He is wet with the dew of heaven. And then we recognize from that lesson that power is given to help the oppressed and that pride is plagiarism of God's goodness. Nebuchadnezz- Nebuchadnezzar repents. He comes back to his kingdom, and he is restored to his throne. Okay, now we're in Daniel chapter 5. And Daniel chapter 5, you can turn there with me, we'll be going through the story today, begins very abruptly. In Daniel chapter 5, we find all of a sudden that Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king. We find a new person on the throne, and his name is Belshazzar. Now in between the first service and this service, it dawned on me that Belshazzar, this king, is essentially an ancient dude bro. Now that is a very technical term. A dude bro uh, really has a certain set of assumptions that you can give to them about how they might behave or the activities that they might engage in as a dude bro. But if you read Daniel chapter 5, you will find out what a dude bro is. For example, a dude bro would be like Belshazzar, and I'm seeing confused looks here. So this is now two words I'm putting together, D-U-D-E, dude, and then bro. So a dude bro. Belshazzar is one of those because we find in Daniel chapter 5 that he is throwing a massive house party. He's throwing a massive house party to the point that the narrator tells us that everyone is loose, everyone is drunk. So I can imagine him getting on the group text, telling everyone to come to his house because there's going to be a huge party. When they get there, there are kegs. They are all drinking. They are chugging back as much as they possibly can. And everyone is loose. Everyone is absolutely wasted. And in the inebriation... Dude bro Belshazzar says, hey, listen, I think if we go to this place, my dad had some really cool gold goblets. And his friends are like, yeah, Belshazzar, do it. Floss on them. Flex on these fools. Get the gold goblets. Let's drink from them. And so he goes, and the Bible tells us that they retrieve the gold and the silver goblets from the temple of Jerusalem, and they begin to drink. Now, before we get there, we're going to go back to the text because there are some really interesting things happening in Daniel chapter 5. Robert Alter, who is a professor of Hebrew from UC Berkeley, tells us that this repetition which happens in Daniel chapter 5 of the uh, things which are taken from the temple of Jerusalem are very important. He calls this uh, phrasal repetition. And this entire statement in Daniel chapter 5 repeats Things that have happened before, but with small changes. And so when you're reading it, it feels like, why is this author constantly repeating themselves? What's the point? We got it the first time. But this repetition is not redundancy. It actually intensifies and signifies what's important in the story, making it easy to understand. Let's look at one example in Daniel chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. So we start off in Daniel chapter 5, verse 2, and it says, While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then look at verse 3, phrasal repetition. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. You're thinking, why are you repeating this? Literally, one verse after the other. What is the point? And it surely cannot be because the author thinks that there has been some kind of amnesia between verse 2 and verse 3, and we need to be reminded that the temple he's talking about is the temple in Jerusalem. We get it. Why are you doing this? And what Alter tells us is, this is happening because in verse 3, there is a difference to verse 2. And I would ask you what it is, but it would take too long. Essentially, there is an addition in verse 3 that isn't present in verse 2, and that is the description of the temple. Because we are told that it is not only the temple in Jerusalem, but it is the house of God. That's right. And so this author is repeating this phrase to emphasize and to point to us that this reckless act of dude bro Belshazzar is not just him being drunk. It's not commentary on the fact that he knocked back too many. This is telling us that this entire act is blasphemy against the God of the temple of Jerusalem, and he is doing something which moves beyond just a reckless party but to moral insubordination. And so, here they are, throwing a house party Getting loose And you wouldn't know that this was a consequential time If you didn't know the history behind it Fortunately, we have this relic Now this hunk of stone is the uh, Naboda Where's John Cress? John You gave me the pronunciation Give me the right one again Nabonides Nabonides. There we go It's the Nabonides Chronicle And this was found in 1879 and put in the British Museum. And it actually gives us some history, which is the background of Daniel chapter 5. And what we find from this hunk of stone is that when this party is being thrown, the Medes and the Persians had been raiding Babylon. They had won battle after battle after battle. And there was only one place in Babylon left which had not been destroyed, and that was the capital city, the city of Babylon. So imagine in this context throwing a huge house party or a palace party. Why in the world, when everything is falling around you, When you are losing ground left and right, when your life is unraveling and falling apart, would you decide it's the right time to throw a huge party? In fact, when you go and you look at history, you will find that his father was actually defeated and he ran and left Belshazzar in charge. And so Belshazzar is throwing this party, not knowing that the empire is going to come to an end soon. But in his mind, life is peachy. He lives in a city where the walls are 17 miles long, 22 feet thick, 90 feet high with huge guard cap uh, towers. He lives in a place where he believes that even if they lay siege to it, i.e. they cut off supply to the city, he knows that there is a river which comes into the city, they can grow food, they can still get what they need, and so he doesn't care. In fact, we're told by historian Herodotus that the city was stocked with enough food to last for four years. And so Nebu- so we find Belshazzar having a false sense of invincibility, even though everything around him was collapsing. And every time I go to the book of Daniel, I don't know about you, but I find it so, so worthy of the contemporary moment that we live in. This cultural moment we live in is just the same as Daniel chapter 5. We live in a time in which when we are dealing with stress and with tragedy, sometimes we have this laissez-faire attitude of let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. Who knows? We have this attitude that when we are going through difficult, complex, intractable times, it's easier to numb the pain and to live large, to put off haunting deep issues in our life for as long as possible. To hear that something has unhinged in our life, it's scraping along the floor, is making a crazy sound, but we decide, well, to stop and to take Care of this, to attend to this problem is going to take too much time, so I am going to just self medicate. I'm going to figure out a way in which I can create an alternate reality, and I'm going to exist in that reality because true reality is too difficult, it's too complex, it's too painful for me to be in. And so, like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, like Belshazzar, we self medicate, we throw huge parties so that we can narcotize ourselves by harmful self-indulgence. And when the reality is too painful to face, temptation becomes so strong to create these false places of invincibility in our life, rather than to recognise that our life needs to be changed. And so we find Belshazzar medicating away the pain and kidding himself about how well his life is going. And I read the text and the Holy Spirit convicts me and I wonder where in my life, and maybe you can ask yourself the same question, are you currently tuning out the noises in your relationships, in your marriages, in your work, where you know you need to stop, you need to pay attention, You need to do serious interior work, but instead you're just pushing the pedal down and you're going to go faster because if you go faster, it's probably going to stop. The U.S. Congress Joint Economic Committee in actually last month, September 19th, brought out a study which recapitulated a study that was done years before by two economists, Deaton and case of Princeton University. And they're speaking about this idea of deaths of despair that have increased exponentially in the United States. Now, deaths of despair are uh, deaths which are happening because of people who reach points in their life where the facade and the reality that they have tried to exist in falls away and they have no other way but to end their lives. And so they categorize the increase in drug use, the increase in alcohol abuse as being deaths of despair. They categorize the increase in suicide as being deaths of despair. And we find that at this point in American history, there has never been such an increase in deaths of despair in this cultural moment. And I wonder how many of us are also dealing with mini deaths of despair, and who are self-medicating rather than attending the serious problems that we face. In fact, just this week, um, having finished a, it was a Thursday evening, was it Thursday or Wednesday? Maybe a Wednesday evening uh, devotional over at Meski we're speaking about choices and how we make choices and choices make us, and I was leaving the dorm, going back to my car, and I had a a short conversation with a bright young man who has been able to take stock of how he feels to such an extent that he said this to me, he goes, hey, I appreciate what you said, because what I was planning to do this evening is after we're done with this, because I'm tired, it's midterms, you know, the fog is starting to come every now and again, there's less sunshine. Um, drama with friends what i was planning to do was go back to my room and then he used these words he goes self medicate i'm like okay and what does that mean he goes well i was just going to eat myself into a food coma <laughs> because you know i have some tough exams coming up i have deadlines which are facing me and I just couldn't deal with them. So the plan this evening was just to eat myself into a food coma, eat as much as I could, and, and then just fall asleep and just pretend it doesn't ha- it's not happening. And so all of us, at some point in our life, you may not be, you know, Breaking Bad, meth addict, but you may be going through places in your uh, life where you are self-medicating so that you can ignore the howling sound. So it may not be Little Debbie's, That is forcing you or making you self-medicate, but you may be finding other ways, staying up and watching two seasons of The Crown. Because you just don't want to think. You may have an Amazon basket, which is full of things you don't need, but they're discounted and you have Prime, so why not? Anything so that you don't have to attend to the life which is falling apart around you. Verses 5 to 6, Daniel comes into the picture. When he comes into the picture, we read this motif of the writing on the wall. So dude bro, he's with his friends. They're chugging. They have cans they're like crushing it on their head. No one's paying any attention. Then all of a sudden, flash to the wall. There's a light that comes on, at least Belshazzar sees it. And it says, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The ESV, translating the Aramaic, translates this interesting phrase that his limbs gave away uh, as in the knots of his limbs were loosened or untied. And this graphic descriptor of the king's terror details in descending order the fear that he is going through. It says that the, his face is blanched, it's white. It says that his mind is anxious. It tells us that his loins are loosed and that his knees are knocking. It's a ripple of fear which traverses his body from head to toe. And the Bible is very polite because this idea of his um, loins being loosed really is a double entendre. It's a hint at something else. Because it's not really speaking about the muscles in his arms being loosed. It's speaking about the knots of his stomach being loosed so you can fill in the rest of what is happening as he is terrified. And so here he is, absolutely terrified. And then he brings in the usual suspects to try to figure out what's going on. This is a motif through Daniel all the time. Something confusing happens. Let's bring in the wise men, let's bring in the astrologers, let's bring in the magicians. Oh, no, they have no idea what's going on. Let's bring in Daniel. It's, it's hilarious. They do it again. I have no idea what's going on. They bring in the astrologers. He says, what's this? They're like, what is what? We don't know what's going on. And then the queen mother says, hey, there's someone called Daniel. Bring him in. He can help. And you find over and over again the narrator telling us in hints that in times of complexity, Babylon never brings us the clarity that we seek. What does that mean, Andreas? Babylon, what's Babylon? What are you talking about? If you're going to flourish... In this cultural moment, we have to understand that we are not going to get our ultimate answers or the clarity that we need for complex situations in our life from anywhere that is beyond the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't to sweep away education, I must say that. We are in an educational institution. This isn't to sweep away being logical. This isn't to do away with everything and saying it's just the Bible. But you find over and over again that clarity is never brought by the wise men, the magicians, the astrologers. And so if I was to put in some uh, differences, I could say, well, clarity for your life and complexity is never going to be brought by the politicians, by the pundits, or by the talking heads. They are not the places that we are to look for our ultimate um, hope or salvation. And so Daniel is brought in. He's no longer a young man. He is now old, he's wise, he's hoary-headed, he's got silver streaks in his hair. Daniel is now grounded in who he is. And it seems to me from my very short experience of life that as you are given chronological wisdom, there seems to be an attendant sense of confidence in being blunt when you speak. You've lived your life, you've heard the arguments, You don't need to beat around the bush. And so if someone asks you an opinion, you just tell them. And this is what Daniel does. He comes in and they want to know what is going on, but Daniel just ignores it. He does not tell them what is happening when they ask him. Instead, he launches into not a recitation of the inscription, but a homily on the practice of royal power. And I'm gonna read some of this, just so you can feel the heat of what Daniel is bringing to this party. Everyone is in the corner slobbering, the king can hardly stand up, and here's Daniel just giving them straight fire in, in Daniel chapter five. He says, O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. Verse 19, and because of the majesty he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever, whoever he, whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. Verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride. He was disposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Verse 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Although you knew all of this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, you have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand owns all your ways you have not glorified. Daniel just brings heat. And he says, God owns you, my friend. God owns your life. God owns this kingdom. God told your daddy, you didn't listen. And now look where you are. And then he goes on and he gives. What does he give? He gives the, what's he giving John? He gives the, wait, I'm hearing someone who's in my head. What, is he, what does Daniel do next? Thank you. He gives the interpretation. I literally needed your help. He gives the interpretation of the inscription. And it's in verse 25. It says, this is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel a and then he gives the, inscri- the interpretation. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. And so he tells him that it's over. It's done. Your partying, your life, what you thought you were going to do after this, it's done. And when you go to history, you find that shortly after this moment, all of the hubris and the pride that he has, that he is um, protected, his, self, his sense of self-invincibility is crushed because the Medes and the Persians who are outside of the gate of the city of Babylon find a water source. They divert it. They come through the water source, underneath the walls, and they come and they take over Babylon. And in one night, the entire empire crashes to the ground. And when I read this story and I think, what lessons can we get from this in 2019? Tw- uh, thousands of years removed. It seems to me that there are many, but the one which gets me the most can be found in verses 29, and I have to explain what I mean, in verses 29 of Daniel chapter 5, verse 22. We're going to walk backwards from this. It says, then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Okay, Andreas, why is this a problem? He's given him love, right? He's given him the the chain, he's given him the cloak. Why is this a problem? This is a problem because Belshazzar doesn't listen. Read verse 17 of Daniel chapter 5. When Daniel comes before Belshazzar, the first thing, literally, the first thing he says is this, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. And then he gives him the interpretation. And what does he do? He gives his gifts and he gives his rewards to Daniel. And this is symptomatic of Belshazzar, who has been compounding in not listening to what is happening in his life. It just goes back to this very beginning illustration. His life has been telling him the changes he needs to make, but he refuses to listen. Belshazzar does not listen. His granddaddy told him, Nebuchadnezzar told him what he needed to do. I'm sure his father told him, his mother told him, the prophet told him, and he didn't listen. He ignored the screeching, howling of his life that something was wrong and he needed to make a change because it would have been too inconvenient. It would have changed the trajectory of his life, and so he decided to ignore it. And so by the time God tells him, we find that the weight of ink in his life is heavy and that there is a heavy toll to be, exact, to be um, extracted because he has not listened. And so by the time God tells Belshazzar that you have been judged, I have this image of um, judgment coming in his life, knocking at the front of his door, has a suitcase, and he's ready to move in. It's too late. Judgment is here. Judgment is going to live. Your life is going to be different. Moves into his life. And then 24 or so hours later, his entire life is different than how it was before. And I would end by saying this. Of all the lessons we can learn, this is the one which gripped me the most, that to thrive in Babylon, we must heed the voice of God and end the pursuit of our own kingdoms. Because when we are pursuing our own kingdoms, boy, we put so much energy, so much effort into it that the voice of God can become dim, and it can be diminished. That your parents, you know, the ones who kind of, sort of, but not really, but yes, they did, bribed you to come to Walla Walla, because they're like, if you come here, I'm alum, I got you. If you go somewhere else, you're on your own. You're like, okay, you know. <laughs> so it's like, it's not low-key, it's literally high-key bribing, and you're here. And now they're talking to you. You don't really want to listen. They're telling you ways in which you ought to navigate the challenges of life. But you're like, what do you know? What life have you lived? You don't know my life. You don't know how difficult it is. I'm not going to take your advice. So we ignore them. You have mentors in your life who have loved you, who have been there for you, and they are trying to counsel you about how you should navigate life, about the relationship you're thinking about entering, about the relationship you're in, about the choice you're going to make when you finish from Walla Walla. And you're like, I don't need to listen to you. I'm grown, I'm 21. I don't need to listen to you. I can figure out my life. And of course, you should figure out your life. But there are voices of wisdom that can help us, that can guide us in ways that will be beneficial to us. And we have Belshazzar who has ignored the counsel of every single person in his life until God has to come and have a disembodied hand right on a wall so he can hear it. And it seems to me that as we think about God, I don't want the, the image to be of like, he's coming to get you if you don't listen. But the reality is that the kingdom of God gate crashes our parties. And when the kingdom of God crashes into our lives, it comes with salvation. When the kingdom of God comes into our life, it wants to give us a true view of reality and then give us the ability to face up to it, not to self-medicate, because we don't know how to do it, but to give us the strength and the power and the grace that we need to navigate our life and to live our lives well. Daniel chapter 5 is in fact an archetype of the demise that happens when we go against the kingdom of God. And the handwriting on the wall is there to beckon us, to let go of our relentless pursuit of our own kingdoms, and instead, to embrace the incoming, in-breaking kingdom of God. And this um, afternoon, you know, I don't know how many of you have related to this, or you think, "Well, you know, <sighs> Andreas, maybe you're right. There, there are places in my life that literally are dragging along the ground, and I'm just ignoring it. Don't have time. It's too complex. Our family doesn't do counseling. Uh, We don't have those kinds of conversations. And so you just plow through. But you know it's dragging. It's making a terrible sound. Maybe today's the day when you stop. Before the handwriting is on the wall, you stop. And you take interior stock of what is going on in your life and you say, I need to Ask God to figure out what this rattling is in my life before it becomes irreparable. I need to ask God to help me to stop pursuing my kingdom so much that I'm leaving his kingdom behind. And I believe every single one of us here this afternoon have places where we need to have this conversation, where we need to come to God in the quiet of our rooms, where we need to come to God on our morning walk and we need to just say, God, something's not right. Help me. And know that God is always ready. Know that God wants to come into your life to bring hope, to bring healing, to bring salvation.